Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and Method Rationality Analysis Podcast. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Brian Deacon. Hi, everybody. Hey, man. This is our penultimate hey, episode. Penultimate. We both dropped the same word, the penultimate. How often do you get a chance to say that word, you know? Yeah. And you know, whenever I feel like it, man. It's weird. This is the penultimate, meaning second to last. And yet tomorrow, or the, not tomorrow, next episode isn't going to feel like our ultimate episode. It'll just That's be true. the last one. Oh, man. <laughs> ultimate. Well, unless we really, really nail it and it does feel like it's, you know, our best work ever. All right, let's commit to having it be our best episode ever. That's too much pressure, man. I can't handle it. Fingers crossed. Okay. Well, here we are. Revelations and closure. What uh, I like like this. I I, as I've been sort of you know I've been as I've been getting introspective about my impressions of the entire novel. um, It was sort of like these. The vibe from these are that kind of like you know, end of Star Wars metal scene of like, okay, all of the, you know, plot points are, you know, being tied together and, and, and closing <clears throat> that that's sort of like an unexpected thing about this book is, is that you Cassie's actually really both in the, just like turns of phrase, just like the way he puts his prose together, like surprisingly good. And then just kind of the, the flow of storytelling that he's uh, done a good job. It, it, it feels almost very like traditional in the, in the ways that he's just kind of followed just kind of the, the, the norms of like the ebb and flow of storytelling, which I think is a lot of the ways I've been sort of able to like guess at the, you know, super secret outcomes of this was just sort of like, well, what works as far as storytelling um, kind of like, you know, constrains the possible outcomes and, and let me figure a lot of it out. But so I like this, like, so it does very much feel like we're in this sort of like, okay, the, the climax is over, everything's winding down and we're sort of now just kind of like, walking through all of the like the the fallout and the consequences of everything that's happened so it's kind of it's a it's a cool thing it's sort of like the uh feeling to a story which is kind of cool and he does a good job of that um which yeah i mean actually you wouldn't expect that out of like fan fiction or something but like this just as far as like a story being written he did a good job with that kind of stuff yeah this is like the uh it's uh I, you know, we had the the big climax of like, oh man, here's everything coming to a head and exploding. And this is like the, you know, the nice mint they serve you after an expensive meal, you know? It's kind of like how you'd have a thin mint after a big meal, except, you know, this mint costs $160 million. A very expensive mint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I was just, yeah, we were just talking a little right before we started recording. I was in playing through my head again, the, the graveyard scene from a couple chapters ago that um, that it feels like a weird combination of like the the final scenes in reservoir dogs of everybody standing the the 37 death eaters standing around pointing their wands at people all sounds like the the mexican standoff towards the end of reservoir dogs like you know everybody's threatening each other and then suddenly everybody drops down dead um with a a weird that vibe combined with a strange uh eyes wide shut thing of perverts standing around in masks (laughs) (laughs) i like that that i think we mention this every time but tarantino writes those standoffs really well like i mean the uh the hateful eight um even the one that they have in the bar the downstairs the basement bar in uh inglorious bastards Mm -hmm. where he's like no one told me this would be a basement it's a bar yeah in a basement there's a lot of things about fighting in a basement number one you're fighting in a basement <laughs> <laughs> or i was in uh i think the equivalent in pulp fiction was when they're in the when it's like tim roth and uh sam jackson in the diner oh yeah pointing guns at you tell that bitch be cool be cool bitch. say be cool bitch be cool bitch love you honey bunny <laughs> all right so 
This one opens she up. She also, Honey Bunny, also in the prophecy uh, with Michael Madsen, who was Mr. Blonde. Oh, nice. String. Yeah, there you go. She had a small. It's all tied role, together, man. She played. She played a corpse. I think she got like zombified by Christopher Walken, if I remember right. Something Walking Dead. Exactly. Ah, nice. <laughs> all right. Now back to your regularly scheduled program. <laughs> oh yeah, Harry Potter. Yep. So starts with Harry outside of the headmistress's office, and they're going up there to meet with Amelia Bones, Alistair Moody, and Bartemius Crouch. I was Crouch. I don't even Crouch. It was Crouch even in the room. I don't even remember. No, the, the second that. No, he doesn't uh, show up. Yeah, he doesn't show up. He's expected. That's right. Because I'm like, wait a minute. Um, yeah, and then I guess what becomes important as a plot point a little bit, like right before that, Harry has like done the timing on what's the, what's the refresh cycle on the stone to be able to heal people. Oh yeah. It was, uh, let's see. Three X three minutes, something, something. Three minutes and 54 seconds. Yes. And that, so. that math becomes important in a bit. Um, but yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, there's a little bit of a preamble of like just him and McGonagall who, um, even after a full year of us trying to put notes together, I still haven't been able to figure out how to print it, spell her name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's like a, as they're kind of going into the, and I think they keep referring to it as, as like, so like the door slash or the office or the room that used to be Dumbledore's and is now um, McGonagall's. So we keep kind of getting faced with that, like the, the shock of that transition that Dumbledore's gone and now it's all Minerva. Um, but yeah, it is. So they all, they, they're in the, the office and then it's, so then Moody shows up and then Amelia Bones shows up. And I think it's just the four of them in that room. Now I've forgotten what was, it was that they, what was the story with Crouch? They were expecting him and he didn't, but no, cause Crouch turned out to be a death eater. Yeah. So in the fourth book, uh, Crouch's son was a secret death eater. That's right. And so David in James. this, he was a secret death eater. And then when they found his body amongst the oh, three right. dozen death eaters, He's like, okay, well, you know what? I'm not time for meetings. I got shit going on. So, mm. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and the other the the other thing that was strange for me, I don't know if maybe I was just not paying a lot of attention in the beginning, but like most of my impressions of Amelia Bones, who was a super cool character, um, but most of that I'm was getting from the scenes inside Azkaban. And I think my like vibe of what of what Amelia Bones was like was more of this kind of actually a lot of the way they per- portrayed the uh, what was it the, basically the PE coach from the movies the um, the Quidditch Hooch. teacher yeah Madame Hooch like the like vaguely semi middle aged lesbian thing it's yeah I definitely I pictured kind of how I pictured Amelia Bones and this description very much like emphasized her being like old. Which kept like striking me different. I'm like, oh, that you know, that hasn't been how I've been picturing up to this point. I kind of picture is kind of like a you know tough, no nonsense, you know, like fifty year old woman. That's still what I'm picturing, yeah. yeah. And like this it describes different. her like like beef jerky given human shape, which is a really funny phrase. <laughs> yeah, I, I I still Did just this picture- strike you as different because because it it seemed like it it put a lot. Of, we were getting a lot of descriptions of Amelia Bones's you know kind of physical appearance, and it kept like striking me as like, Oh wait, that's not how I've been picturing this whole time. Yeah. I still don't really picture it that way. I think, I think it, it emphasizes it in this chapter because Harry at the end offers her to, you know, not look old anymore. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. it wants to point oh, out. Yeah, like, oh yeah. I bet you were hot when you were younger. Let's, let's do that again. I think he was a little more, uh, you know, reserved about it, but he was just saying, he, he, he put nicer words to exactly the same idea. Yeah. 
That was actually sort of interesting. He, it, there was several points in this chapter where Harry's putting like some conscious effort towards like, I mean, he's basically like, okay, don't be an asshole right now. It's important that these people like, <laughs> like these moments are important for the rest of the future of humanity. Don't piss people off unnecessarily. And so he does, there's several points where he sort of like takes a deep breath and tries to just say things nicely. Um, and, you know, there's probably a lesson in that somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. But you probably really have to squint to find it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, what is it? It's so it's sort of just starts with like every so it's um moody mcgonagall harry and amelia bones all in the room and they're basically just sort of like breaking down like okay what the fuck all just happened both for their benefit and in ours yeah basically uh like there's a couple funny moments i wanted to hit on the way up so like uh mcgonagall is taking the stairs like two at a time and harry's out of breath trying to keep up with her which i just think is funny because mcgonagall's (laughs) in her i'm assuming 80s or 90s and she's like i don't know i i think it's partly like the uh the cat part of her um oh yeah i get that because they, they make a they make a reference to that when she like leaps over the chairs in the wisdom gamut to give uh like have hermione swear to the house of yeah, potter or something and it's like she felinely leaps over the chairs or something uh, but anyways, yeah, i guess i was always reading it more as just like it was kind of a a call out to sort of her powerfulness as a as a witch wizard totally yeah um, she's like she's, oh yeah i'm old but don't fuck with me yeah she's also physically uh like uh what's the word I don't know, with it. I can't think of a mm-hmm. good word. But I like how she says, uh, like, just, like, reflecting, I wonder how Miss Granger will feel about also having vanquished you-know-who. And Harry's like, oh, you mean because she's always self-identified as a normal academic genius yeah. and a bunch of people will think of her as the girl who revived and everyone wants to shake her hand? Gosh, I can't imagine what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, we, and a little bit later we get, like, Harry sort of ruminating on that a bit of, like, oh, like, I've just, I just, on purpose, like, roped her into the same like you know messiah figure that i've been and there's all kinds of inconveniences around that so oops sorry hermione yeah and then the other other funny bit i wanted to pull out is that when uh when moody shows up he pretends to cast the killing curse at harry yeah Yeah, how does that i think you and you just sent me like a a cartoon of like harry accidentally saying the words abracadabra and then killing his friend oh yeah um like how does that way like Moody's holding a wand. He says the words. Why? Wh- why is that not a spell? I think there's there's intention behind the killing curse. Crossed? That they, I guess so. Well, they go oh, into yeah, it. Talked about like like oh yeah, you want to have the person dead. Yeah, and like not not merely like you know I will avenge my you know fallen brother. It's like no, it you have to want them dead for the sake of being dead. Like it, that's why there's no defense for it. Like mm. it's not a it's not a self defense spell. It's a I want you murdered spell. And so kind of like you could probably say the words expect a patronum, but if you're not doing the the right headspace, it doesn't work. So well, yeah, and if, if all it took was the words, then it would be easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, uh, you know, Leviosa, not Leviosa. <laughs> and it, if, if all it took was the correct pronunciation and movements to do magic, then everyone would be able to, you know. Cadavra. Yeah, exactly. If all it took was the right enunciation and, and wand movements, then all it would take is a little practice to become, you know, as powerful as Dumbledore. So. You could build a bot to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So then um, Amelia Bones shows up and then there there's all this back and forth about the line of Merlin. And uh, it wasn't clear to me until I read it a second time through that, that he did, that he basically, and actually I make sure I'm getting this right. He pretty much lays out for those four people in the room 
what really happened. Like they're now all in on the thing that like, yeah, no, I'm the one that killed Voldemort. Um, he, but no, he's not actually dead. He's here in my ring. Like he pretty much every important point about what really happened. He's, he pretty much tells them. Yeah. He, he tells them everything except for, uh, that Voldemort was actually Quirrell the whole time. Oh yeah. yeah. He lets them keep thinking that Quirrell was David Monroe. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Cause they, and they keep talking about Monroe, but yeah, but he does like, so they even know like, oh yeah, he's here in my ring right now. And I erased his memory. He doesn't go into a lot of detail on that, but he basically does tell them like, no, he's not actually dead. I just sort of like erased him. Um, but by the way, he's right here. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is sort of like, <laughs> if, if you were all super freaked out about all that, you'd probably be like, oh wait, what? He's wait. Oh fuck shit. He'd <laughs> probably be really worried about that. So he's dead. We won the war, right? No, actually he's right here. <laughs> no. I brought I mean, him into the room. I've got a nuclear bomb in my suitcase here, but like, it's fine. So, I mean, we're, we're, it's cool. Don't worry about it. We're good. It doesn't remember that it's nuclear bomb. So it's probably okay. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I, I defused it. Don't worry. I mean, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Yeah. Trust me. I'm an 11 year old expert. Exactly. Well, I mean, he did the best he could, you know? <laughs> so, um, Bones is all freaked out because he's like, wait, you mean Dal- Albus Dumbledore left the line of Merlin unbroken to whoever happened to kill Voldemort? Like, what the fuck? And, uh, Minerva nicely points out that like, actually we're pretty, he was pretty sure he knew who would defeat Voldemort and uh, you know, there's a prophecy and everything, but now I'm kind of confused because you know, I'm not sure what his legacies will make of all this. And then Moody puts the elder wand on the table and he's like, hold on, you know, pick this up real quick. And then he goes to pick it up and it like flies into his hand yeah, and there's like, like magic genie shit. To his yeah. Head. Yeah. And then Moody's like, so, okay. It wouldn't have gone to Harry if, uh, if it really was Hermione that took him out, then, it wouldn't suddenly be flying over to Harry. So, all right, Harry, what's up? Exactly. And then so I did think that like, as far as like, there is this sort of like established magical rule, even from the beginnings about like, okay, the wand goes to the person that conquered the blah, blah, blah. Like what are the magical wand rules about what counts as conquering? Because Voldemort's not dead. He's on Harry's hand right now. Um, so, but, but I guess whatever he did counts as having conquered. Um, so I think it just means defeat, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't think it has to be, because he also, Dumbledore didn't kill Grindelwald. Um, he oh, merely, Grindelwald. St- oh yeah, because Grindelwald's in prison. Yeah, so he he yeah. merely subdued him. Mm, and I seem to remember some vague fuckery in the seventh book about, like, someone disarmed somebody who was holding the Elder Wand, and that counted as defeating them, which seems like a complete, that you know, familiar. That, 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 that sounds kind of weak, but... Uh, then that explained why it wasn't working properly for Voldemort or something. I can't remember all the the rules there, but um, yeah. So yeah, that's something. Yeah, and honestly, because I uh, as I was like reading these books with my daughter, the um, the the movie ending for this is a little more dramatic and and like I think actually just like better. The, the whole thing about like oh, like who does the wand belong to, and the kind of like very anti climax of the way that like like in the originals. Voldemort's defeated with just an expelliarmus because that's like the first spell Harry ever knew. It was like such a, like, oh, that was fucking lame. Like, even you're like, oh, wait, what? That was it? Like, he just, like, that is all it was? Like, it was kind of a, I think the movie actually did a better job than the book for as far as like giving some dramatic impact to the whole event. And the book painted, or the movie painted a cooler picture, you know, mainly because it got to do it with pictures, but. Like I liked the little like force battles they would have, you know, with the yeah. stringy magic flinging at each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I remember actually uh, when I was reading it with my daughter in the book that, uh, like, actually wondering like, wait, was that did that was that it right there? Because it seemed it was such like a 
a letdown. You're like, oh, that couldn't have been the final event. But no, apparently it was. <laughs> I guess maybe we were supposed to like have some huge you know, significance to the fact that it was Expelliarmus or something. But that always just seemed like the like it's like the magic missile of Hogwarts. It's like your level one wizard spell. Yeah. And I think that, that there was a thing. I want to say it was in the fifth book when they're moving Harry out of his parents' house because for reasons that are whatever, just purely plot relevant, the magical protection that he gets from living at with his aunt and uncle like evaporates the day he turns 16 or some bullshit. Mm. So they get a bunch of people to come and take Polyjuice and pretend to be him and all fly out of there yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. just like yeah, safely tell, rather than just safely apparate somewhere. They all got to fly out to have a chase yeah. scene. And uh, it was a cool scene, as I recall. They, they identified Harry immediately because he tried to disarm one of the Death Eaters rather than just shoot them. And so, uh, yeah, it's like, dude, you, you've got like the signature spell, which is non lethal. And like, let's be real, if you need to stun a Death Eater so they fall off their broom and probably break their neck, like, we're kind of at the level in the war where that's okay. And he's like, well, I like, you know, being whatever nice. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, my 80s nerd reference that that's the, it's Mahalito. That's the, I'm not even going to explain that. You'll see if any of our listeners get it. I don't get it. So great. I know, right? Now you'll have to Google it. Mahalito. The the Expelliarmus magic missile. Okay. The Wizarding World. I'll try to remember to do that. There you go. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, then at this point, that's where he tells them everything about what, you know, most of the things that went down in the graveyard. He's like, yeah, uh, you know, I did, I guess, actually defeat Voldemort. Uh, You know, I, I, so... Let's, but let's not tell everyone that. And uh, I like this too, where Moody's like, "Hey, you made sure to get his Horcrux. You're certain it was the real thing, which is a nice one level of paranoia. Mm-hmm. Like, you're sure it wasn't a fake Horcrux?" And he's like, "Ah, uh, he had a he had a lot of Horcruxes, he had a, lot, so. a lot, kind of a lot." <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he basically owns up to like, yeah, there isn't even any kind of necessity to be evasive about that because he pretty much says like, okay, that just wasn't going to work. So I just had to erase him basically. Oh yeah, totally. The whole kill him thing is, is not a viable option. Yeah. L- let's watch Moody try and track down all the Horcruxes. Come on. Yeah, I did read like a, a really short fan fiction thing where it was <laughs> Moody had like a magical like space suit on and he was like, f- uh, flying towards the pioneer plaque with the sword of Roderick Gryffindor, <laughs> so he could, he could just be extra sure just, that he's getting all the horcruxes. It does seem like that that ought to be within the the realm of of magic, like all the other shit that goes on. But like teleport yourself a couple light years away doesn't seem like that should be like far out of reach for shit that can be accomplished through magic. And pioneer plaque's not even light years away; it's light hours away. That's true, know? which is still a long way. But okay, yeah. Stupid little aside because that's the business we're in. Um, if you like, like do like Google the numbers and like bust out a napkin and and do the math. It is sort of fascinating. The, the scale of sizes of our solar system and how far away other stars are. It's just weird. Like the sizes of our planets and how far away things are and the size of our sun. I think probably just because of like pictures that we get, you know, drawings that are made of things give us a, 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 a bad impression of the scale, but that if you, if you like bust out the numbers and look at it, that the solar system is actually like super tiny little specks of dust that are very, very, very far away from each other. Like it's almost, it's just huge, vast amounts of empty space and the size of things, I think are kind of our intuitive sense of the size of things relative to their distance from each other. is like way out of whack. And it's basically just tiny little grains of sand that are thousands of miles away from each other. It's kind of like when you put it together, you're like, oh, wow, that's really, really far away. That, the, the 
the one that struck me the, the most weird is like specifically for our solar system, like the first four planets, like between the, the sun and Mars is the, these few little planets. And then the rest of the whole entire solar, solar system is way the fuck far away. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I think Richard Dawkins put it really well that like our brains evolved in like middle worlds, like not super small, not super big. So like the, the scope of like the, the infinitesimal, and the the galactic scale is just something that unless you're a practiced expert in one of those fields, you're basically just like looking at orders of magnitude on a piece of paper. And you're like, okay, yeah, that looks small. Like, but the difference between, I don't know, one billionth of a nanometer and one ten trillionth of a nanometer makes no difference to you. So like it's just however long it takes your eyes to glaze over that number of zeros on a piece of paper. But Yeah, like I was I think when I like ran it through, like if you we're going to like try to model our solar system within the size of the room that you're standing in that everything would be so like the orbit of Pluto. If, if you had to fit the order of Pluto inside the room that you're in, the only thing that would be big enough for you to see with the naked eye would be the sun. Yeah. That makes sense. Which, yeah. It's a and, weird. Yeah. I think it was like, uh, you know, if you had like a fly in the middle of a football stadium is like another realistic scale or something. Yeah. But in any case, the universe is big, yo. Yeah, that, that's just our teeny story. was relevant to not a goddamn thing we've been talking about. Yeah, close Only up. in that it was fun to talk about. But we are talking, you know what, this actually is relevant because we are at some point here going to be talking about stars and the distance to all that stuff in the future because as we learn here in a minute, Harry is the prophesied instrument of destruction for the universe, including ripping the stars apart. So their, their distance to the Earth is relevant. Exactly. Yeah, and the, the, in the note, so we do get... So it's, there were actually two letters though, but McGonagall gives, it was two separate letters, right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. There's two letters. One that McGonagall Harry was supposed two to get to Harry from Dumbledore. Yeah. So Harry gets one after Dumbledore is after his death or other departure. And then Harry was to get another letter when Voldemort was vanquished. And since those, those happened within three hours of each other, he gets both of them at the same time. Yeah. That made me like wonder, like, how did that fit? Was this... You know, was it like a year earlier, Dumbledore's like handing envelopes over to McGonagall and be like, by the way, if something, here's some cryptic shit that, but if, if something happens, follow these instructions. Yeah, basically. I think it was less than a year, but something like that. Because yeah. he, he mentioned like, one like, of them. McGonagall's that, point of view, that would be like, what the fuck is going on here? Right. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. If you're hanging out with Dumbledore for 30 years, you're probably getting tons so, of random weird orders. I guess yeah, it'd be another one of those like, is there something you need to be telling me, Albus? This seems like I ought to know. Is this another my father's rock situation? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we do. We got a, like a little few of those insights that there was like you know like time traveling Dumbledore or at least you know prophecy reading Dumbledore that you know throughout these last dozen years of Harry's life, Dumbledore has been sort of creepily showing up and doing shit. Yeah, it's the best. And disappearing. I love it. So we'll get to that. The first letter talks about how um, okay, look, uh, you're reading this because I'm gone. Um, Voldemort's shadow is going to fall, you know, long and dark across Britain, and many will suffer and die. You know, the only way for you to to win is to use whatever that power is that you have that he doesn't have that he doesn't know, and don't show him mercy. Um, I left my wand to, to Moody. Don't use it against Voldemort because he defeated me, and it will, you know, uh, betray you for certain. Um, and I like this too. He says, "In my absence, the Wizarding Gummit will inevitably fall to Malfoy," and. Uh, I believe that the ministry will fall and Hogwarts will become the last fortress. And I like that because that's kind of what happens in the seventh book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting that like how much of that is then not like not 
actually true. I guess at least in the way that he was seeing it, like when he's saying like, okay, the it's all going to fall to Malfoy. He's probably thinking Lucius, but, but no, and it maybe will end up being Draco, but not in any kind of way that is implied by that prophecy. Yeah. It's hard to say how much of this letter is prophecy informed yeah. and how much of it is just him guessing at what will happen. Yeah. It's like, look, I know I'm the big instrument stopping Voldemort from taking over everything. If I'm gone, he'll start, you know, knocking over the big important players and take over the world. So, yeah. um, you know, good luck. And, uh, well, he does, does he say good luck? I can't remember. He does say like, I don't um, no, he says in the end, you'll defeat Voldemort. I have no doubt. Um, so, when you vanquish Voldemort, when you save this country, then I hope you may embark upon the true meaning of your days. Hurry then to begin. Yours in death, or in whatever, Dumbledore. <laughs> he knew that, I guess, it might not be just straight being murdered that would take yeah. him out of the picture. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like, a lot of – that's um, most of that isn't resolved, but it, like, made me sort of wonder, like, what, what was that like from Dumbledore's experience of sort of knowing prophecies and knowing – knowing in general the outcome of things um but but not the specifics like did he know like so it turns out he's you know in this some sort of like netherworld of outside of time trapped in the mirror thing like to what extent he knew things were going to end badly for him but like how much did he know about how it was going to be specifically sort of like especially as like as a person who's making these grand decisions about you know the the fate of humanity and his role in it um what did he think was going to be happening as he, as he was walking through it? Because he clearly had some, you know, pre-information about how it was going to work out, but not exactly specific. So that would have been a weird, a weird experience to have if I were Elvis Dumbledore. I think that's like the annoying thing about prophecies is that you don't get like, you know, on the 21st of December, you know, Albus Dumbledore will shoot Voldemort in the back of the head with a, you know, with a revolver and, and was it, it was cool that like, all he talked, yeah. And he talks a little bit about that in that, in the letter that he gives to Harry that he sort of, I think I can't remember exactly who put it, but basically he's like, you know, I'm counting on the fact that I can get off on technicalities for some of the ways these prophecies were phrased that like, you're going to, I can't remember exactly what it, but like basically you're going to destroy shit, but not ruin shit. <laughs> like, you know, it sounds bad, but there's, you know, possibly a way that you could interpret that where, you know, Harry Potter does save the day, even though it sounds like he's destroying everything else. Yeah. And that he sort of like, you know, pushes all his chips in the middle on hoping that technicality works out. Exactly. So that's, that's where we're at. So the end of the first letter, he just says, there's the passwords, Phoenix price, Phoenix fate and Phoenix egg spoken within my office. Um, I think we've seen the Phoenix Price and Phoenix Fate room, but we didn't. He never said Phoenix Egg in the story yet. So that totally struck me as one of those like movie hacker scenes where like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> it's Phoenix Fate. Oh, I got it. A great password. password. And then, so then he opens the second well, letter. The dictionary, Dumbledore. What have you learned? Yeah, it's not. That's a, a long past <laughs> phrase. Um, so then the second letter opens. He says, "If you're reading this, you've defeated Voldemort. Congratulations on that." I hope you've had some time to celebrate before opening the scroll because the news in it is not cheerful. I love this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I like is he leads up to saying, and it's it's just the gravity of it hits awesomely because Dumbledore even knows, I guess, as he's writing it to put in line breaks where it's dramatic. Um, <laughs> and it's got that like very cool like Dumbledore self-awareness of the irony of the whole thing. Exactly. During the first Wizarding War, there came a time when I realized that Voldemort was winning, that he would soon hold soon hold all within his hand. In that extremity, I went to the Department of Mysteries and I invoked a password which had never been spoken in the history of the line of Merlin unbroken. Did a thing forbidden and yet not utterly forbidden. I listened to every prophecy that had ever been recorded. And so I learned that my troubles were far worse than Voldemort. 
And this is where he's saying there was this chorus of foretellings from the future that the world is doomed for destruction and that you, Harry James Potter Evans Varys, are one of those foretold to destroy it. And he says that he had ended a bunch of other possibilities from coming to pass, um, but he didn't end Harry's because his had loopholes. Um, always he will end the world, not he will end life. And so even when it was said that you would tear apart the very stars in heaven, it was not said that you would tear apart its people. And I really like the vibe that we got of, of Dumbledore now that we're sort of like able to rewind the whole thing and see like, okay, this is what Dumbledore's point of view for the whole thing has been that that he's this person that was like given the grand view of everything and the magnitude of the importance of his, of his decisions. And that he's made this very canny choice to act like a crazy person. Um, and that I, I just like sort of like picturing, you know, and then in, you know, kind of rolling back and, and rethinking all of the ways he's acted throughout the story, that that's actually this very considered, calculated way of like, okay, this it's important that I appear this way in order to make all the pieces on the board move. That it's very both both a like complicated in the sense of like Dumbledore being aware of the the gray area costs of of all of the decisions he's made. Um while also, you know, sort of I, I don't know, like the the awareness of 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 what the the appearance to other people would be that that like okay yeah I need to look like a crazy person so I'm gonna act like a crazy person, but that's actually this like eighth dimensional chess level of awareness of the entire effect of everything going on and doing that on purpose. So it's kind of this cool like you get to see Vol- uh, see not Voldemort see Dumbledore as this much larger smarter character through this whole place. And now he's gone, but this is the kind of the legacy he's left to Harry. It was kind of, it's like, like there's a lot going on there that like lets your, your brain kind of wander off in different directions. Yeah. I love it. I thought it was about him as a character. Yeah. Yeah. And Dumbledore. Yeah. yeah, And it's cool how it implies like like how much more there is to that, to that character. Yeah. Exactly. This whole time that you, you learn that Dumbledore was like every time he's, you know, when he first brought Harry into his office in the first week, he's like, Oh, so this is the kid who's going to destroy the world. Um, yeah, he knew everything this whole time, and uh, there was a, there was a funny bit too. So he's listing through all of the, like the random shit that he did to Harry that he doesn't know about, like that he doesn't know why he did. Like he wrote a hint in his mother's potions textbook, and he gives Harry that textbook when he first meets him, and he's like, "Yeah, I used to slip into a room, like into her dorm, was invisible, and write in her textbook." Um, and that's and not creepy at all. Exactly. So even Harry was like, "Okay, well that's weird. I got to get out of here." But uh, the reason that he did that was so that. Um, she could make the potion of Eagle's splendor or whatever and make, make Petunia pretty. And uh, then she would fall in, you know, be in a, a nice relationship and be in a loving home and raise Harry with a better future. So like, all, and like, but I don't know if Dumbledore put all that together until after the fact, right? Yeah. Like but that's like eight steps removed from exactly. getting a Harry Potter to show up at Hogwarts. And there was a funny line too, in the very first chapter when, uh, um, you know, Harry gets the letter and Harry's dad is like, okay, yeah, well, this is all bullshit. And Petunia is trying to explain to him. It's like, no, no, look, you know, I, I look like this because I begged Lily for years to, to find some, you know, use magic to make me pretty. And she would tell me no. And she'd make up the most ridiculous excuses. Like the world would end if she were nice to her sister or a center told her not to. And um, <laughs> apparently she was told both of those things and she did it anyway. Um, so I like the, the little nod there. And we'll get like our, that's the, the third of these chapters from this week. That, that sort of ties in with the, the, the whole very kind of like shallow incel thing between um, Snape and Lily, 
that kind of like ties together like Lily's awareness of the that very you know surface level importance around appearance and stuff like that's part of that same like the important the like yeah that shouldn't be important but it ends up being important to just like the specifics of the events that that play out yeah that's a good point they uh you know she had inside view i'm not sure if by that point she had already given her sister the potion or whatever but she had yeah. seen somebody you know treated poorly because they were not pretty and then had the opportunity to make them pretty um and then yeah, it's like, we'll oh, yeah. That, the, this other chapter. I, I, I really like that kind of the, the tie up that we get in the, in the second to last chapter here with Snape. I think that's the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean second to last yeah. in the book? Second to yeah. last for, yeah. Yeah. Last for yeah. us this week. Let's see. So, what else, uh, what else nonsense did Dumbledore do? He had to go through, um, <laughs> he made sure Voldemort heard the prophecy that Snape heard. Um, so, he confesses here to Harry that, yes, I condemned your parents to death and made you what you are. Um, I wrote a strange hint in your mother's potions textbook, having no idea why I must. And uh, I snuck invisibly into your bedroom in Oxford, administered the potion that is given to students a time turner to extend your day's cycle by two hours. And when <laughs> you- <laughs> so, like, so much of this is like, oh, that's just fucking creepy, man. Like, <laughs> right. When you were six years old, I smashed a rock on your windowsill. And to this day, I cannot imagine why. So, <laughs> Dumbledore murdered his pet rock. <laughs> <laughs> And I like how so much of this, like Harry just like reads out the letter and like he's processing it all. He doesn't bother to share any of that with it. He's like, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's whatever. Um, yes, I'm the line of Berlin unbroken and don't worry about the rest of it. Yeah. The, a lot of this, he's got, I mean, who knows how tight a cap he wants to keep on this probably <laughs> super tight. Right. Um, I don't know since, you know, Moody and, uh, bones don't know him and even McGonagall might try and do the responsible thing and kill him. If it's like, Oh yeah, you're going to destroy the world. Um, <laughs> so, uh, he does tell Harry that, yeah, the one thing I have, I love to do everything. Um, I, you know, I gave Minerva Hogwarts, but if you want that, it's yours too. Um, if, uh, you know, the only thing you don't get is the prophecies. When I left, I destroyed them all and no future ones will be recorded. Um, I like this too. He says, uh, for it was said that you must not look upon them. If you think this is frustrating, believe me when I say that your wit not, cannot comprehend what frustration you have been spared. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be lost or t- I'll be lo- I will die or be lost by you or in some other way taken from you. The prophecies are unclear naturally without ever once knowing what the future truly holds or why I must do what I do. It's all cryptic madness and you are well rid of it. <laughs> I like to, he signs the first letter, um, Dumbledore and he signs this one, Albus. Hmm. Yeah. And picked up on that. It's just, it, it this one seems yeah. more like a peer, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's sort of like, it's fun to imagine, yeah, like rewinding like every scene that we've seen with the way that Dumbledore and Harry interact, like then knowing during those scenes how much Dumbledore actually knew about what was going on and what that was then really like for him, like what was really going on in his head during those scenes. It's kind of cool to like it's a big rewrite of what you thought was going on at the time. Yeah, that's why I think that this this book above like basically any other book I've read really lends itself to a reread, um, you know, like watching the sixth sense the second time you get to see all the little things that were there the whole time, but you didn't know what you're looking at. Right. Uh, this book is full of those and it's awesome. You know, like even Hermione says uh, when he first meets her on the train, she's like, Oh yeah, I read about you in books. They say that uh, um, whatever this and that, and that the centaurs fear you and that there's this or something else, but like another little line dropped and it's like, then uh, whatever, 10 chapters ago or something uh, probably if I tries to kill Harry and uh, then we get another ex- explanation here about, um, or not, we don't get an explanation, but we get 
a nod to that line in the first chapter about the centaurs, you know, uh, being aware of this all, uh, yeah. from their, their star divination and stuff. Um, and I mean, that's just like some of the small stuff, you know, like when, I don't know. I mean, I, we'll probably have room for lots of this in our final retro episode, talking about all the cool shit that was dropped throughout the entire story. But if you ever get bored, you know, this is a, a, a really fun one to go back through and it won't take a year the second time reading through it. And you'll be like, oh, wait, that's why Dumbledore is laughing right here or whatever. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And we still don't have great. a great we don't have a lot of we've got a little bit. We don't we don't have a great understanding for you know everybody sees Harry as this you know potential threat to the fabric of space and time. But other than Harry mildly, you know, mulling over the concept of using the stone to transfigure antimatter um we we don't have a a great or specific sense of like you know how is it that harry is a you know danger to space and time um we know that lots of people are worried about that and you know, like frenzy was willing to kill him over it but um we don't have any kind of we don't know the specifics around that or maybe that's it maybe it's just that like okay somebody that understands the potential of what that thing can do can ruin all the things yeah i mean if you're handed incontrovertible proof in 1902 or whatever that uh you know hitler would grow up to you know do the holocaust or you know uh, to be to orchestrate all the 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 horrible uh issues of world war ii um even if you only had it in the biggest terms but like you believed what you were handed you'd be like well i gotta do something about this um i don't have to know exactly what i'm stopping i just know that it's going to be super bad and i got to get this guy out of the out of the picture um and i guess uh the centaurs kind of see harry as uh as a worse than Hitler kind of threat. So <laughs> he's baby Adolf. Yeah. Except for the, the stars are the, yeah. The well, of his yeah he's, not so much baby, he's like baby Oppenheimer. Yeah. That's a good, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's unclear, but it seems like one of the things that happened with Dumbledore's, uh, I don't know, careful interventions is that uh, it lined up for Harry to end up in a situation where he took an unbreakable vow to guess, be super yeah. fucking careful, right? <laughs> and but I this, do like that. I, all I, the vow holds him like, too. Yeah, yeah. And but then it's also like, and also you need Hermione. Like that's the other part of it is like, and you're not to be trusted. You need to check with this chick, right? So um, anyway, Harry finishes the second letter and he just looks up and says, uh, "Amelia Bones, like, what's it say?" He's like, "It's a confessional letter." Turns out Tumbledore killed my pet rock. <laughs> <laughs> And then Moody says, yeah, it's been really hard for me not to read that because he can, you know, see through everything yeah. with his magic eye and Harry quickly shoves it in his pouch. Yeah, um, yeah I like that. Uh, I like sort of like the the implied part about that. Like you're just when Moody's got something that's like kind of super powerful like that, how much you've just sort of been relying on his ethics. Like he's only not reading it because he decides it's the right thing to do to not read it. Well, I mean, at the, you like, have stopped him if you'd wanted to. At the most base level, he can see through everyone's clothes all the time, right? Yeah. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I guess so. So if he wants to, you know, walk through downtown and, and undress everybody's walking past, it's super easy for him. <laughs> guess so. I guess so. But presumably he's a man constrained. Well, I don't know. You know, thinking of, of Moody, he probably would take a cursory glance at everybody just to make sure they're not strapped to C4. <laughs> I, would, I, I would picture him more as just being like kind of so neurotically weird that like, yeah, he could, and maybe he does occasionally, but it's just not a thing for him. He's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Whatever. I don't think, I don't think that he's enjoying what he's seeing. I just imagine he's checking everybody for bombs and secret weapons and guns and whatever. Like he knows the specific grooming patterns of everybody's pubic hair and just doesn't give a shit. Right. As he's walking down the like street. Like Superman. He's like, ah, whatever. Like, <laughs> I guess. That, yeah. See? Yeah. I'm homaging towards Superman's stupid level of power. Um, (laughs) 
that, that might become relevant here in a few weeks. Um, <laughs> let's see. So at this point, uh, he's like, this is where he has that thing where it's his inner Hufflepuff. And it's like, all right, be polite. Um, don't be your usual brand of bloody idiot because the fate of the world might just depend on it or not. We don't even know, but you know, like let's, let's not be a dick about this. Um, yeah. and I like, I sort of like the, well, at least it, it reminded me quite a bit of, of back when I was, had the terrible habit of caring what the peanut gallery thought, um, that like, it was a, a self-awareness on Harry's part of like, oh, you know what? You, you've been a dick before and you should stop doing that right now. It's important. So I like, it was sort of like a, an acknowledgement of like the, the progress that Harry's made of sort of being aware of, you know, how he strikes other people and like the validity of, because because he's not just like oh it, it's not some sort of like calculated like oh it's important that you know you come off well to these people it was sort of kind of a like an actual recognition of like you know what you you need to be a nice person right now because this is important so yeah i i kind of wonder and we'll have we'll talk to somebody at some point during one of the retros for this but like i don't, I don't know who can go through the story and think that harry wasn't an asshole at points and that's that's the point is like he wasn't yeah. always the the you know, doing the right thing for the right reasons. I don't think anyone, maybe someone makes that case. And if so, I mean, the thing is, it's easy to cheer for him, even when he's being a bit over the top, because we like him, we want him to win, and he's doing the right thing. Um, or he's got the right goals. But like, I mean, so either you have to say, uh, no, he, or yes, he was an asshole, and this is growth, or no, he was great before. And his whole thing here about trying to be nice is just a as a weakness that he's developed over time. And like, no, I think he's gotten better. Uh, yeah exactly and it seems like even he's aware of that like he's like oh this you know this is a skill i'm like like oh it's important to to act like this like he's aware that this is a new a new muscle he's developed i think i mentioned this last week but i'm again i'm picturing that meme of like that that anime with the guy pointing at the butterfly and like is this character growth (laughs) (laughs) um that said i mean it's possible to love harry the entire time and watch him grow right yeah um it's it's what made him such a fun protagonist like it's there's there's other books where you know you're reading it and the character's being an asshole and it's like you can't sympathize yeah. and it's like oh man you know that's not what you should be doing and you know that but in, in a lot of Harry's cases you're like yeah man I totally fucking get it you go get those assholes yeah. um, teach me yeah, it's, it's like the difference between like oh you know this is a a way he grew and improved versus oh this never required growth or improvement um, right but and that's what I, and that's like the cool thing like Harry's whole path through this whole story is like the way he's discovered these things and like he's not the same kid he was in the beginning exactly there's another fun thing too that i think just from reading this slowly um there's a handful of times in this chapter where uh uh, bones like locks eyes and exchanges a long stare with mcgonagall Mm -hmm. and it didn't occur to me until this read through that they're doing that like telepathic legitimacy thing oh i hadn't thought about that and she'd be like, Minerva seems to think that you'll not take offense to honest words. And then later she looks back at Minerva and does something else later. And they, she comes back with new information. And I'm like, oh, they're silently communicating. Oh, you know, I hadn't thought about it. And that's totally like, that's very much like that, that scene, that very first Dementor scene with, yeah. uh, with Coral, like where uh, Dumbledore and Harry are kind of like exchanging thoughts. Or thought, yeah, you're totally right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. That's totally must be what was going on. Yeah, it's kind of cool to think about. And what's fun is like, this is like the equivalent of like texting somebody at the table that like, you know, you're <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, all right, I know we're sitting here and I want to say stuff to you, but I can't let them hear. So I'm just check your phone. <laughs> and the equivalent of that is like, oh, I'm going to make message. prolonged eye contact. Because <laughs> <laughs> the off-net message is, can we get the fuck out of here? Like, 
Right. Oh, okay. All right. So, oh, what was the text? Oh, yeah, that was. Oh, we gotta go. Sorry. Have you ever like been at a party and like pre-agree to somebody? Like, all right, here's the signal that like we're gonna go. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's fun. <laughs> it's not something obvious like in the movies where it's like, all right, I'm gonna pull on my right earlobe, and that's our that's our signal to get the fuck out of here. But um, something subtle. It's like, hey, you know what? Uh, actually, it is. It's time to time to roll. So, um, you know. Anyway, let's see. So he he's uh, basically. Um, so Harry's talking with with Bones about um, the wisdom of Dumbledore's decision to leave the line and the wand and you know everything to Harry Potter. You know, yeah, and that's um, her like big point of contention with all this is like this is not just an eleven year old kid, but a, an erratic weirdo eleven year old kid. And how are we going to let him be God Emperor of all the things? Right. And so Harry's kind of like, you didn't think very much of Dumbledore, did you? And she's like. No, or she says, well, Albus was a better wizard than I and a better person than I in more ways than I can easily count. But the man had his faults. And Harry's trying to point out that like, yeah, look, uh, I mean, I realize what you're saying, but Dumbledore knew everything you just said about my being young and how the line works and all this and that. You're acting like Dumbledore was unaware of these things or made decisions or ignoring the way he made his decision. And he says, it's true that sometimes stupid people like me make decisions that are crazy, but not Dumbledore. He was not mad. I'm beginning to think... I'm beginning to realize that Dumbledore is the only sane person in all of this. The only one who's doing the right things for anything like the right reasons. Yeah. And that like, and that hits Moody particularly hard. He's like that, that like rings super true for like Moody's impression of how everything's gone. So that was sort of interesting. Like Moody's a very good sort of like barometer for like the, the harsh truth of ever, of how everything has happened. And the fact that like that hits for him, is like, Oh yeah, no, definitely Dumbledore was not some like clueless, crazy person. Right. And uh, there was the um, <laughs> uh, the bit where she says, yeah, look, I'm not an idiot. I, I, I realize you're no ordinary child. And she says, I'm guessing that uh, you absorb some, sh- some part of, you know, who's shredded soul on the night of his undeath and uh, but subdued it and turned knowledge, turned his knowledge to good ends. And there was a slight pause in the room. Well, yes, of course, Minerva said Minerva. Uh, as Albus clearly knew from the very beginning and thoughtfully declines to warn me about it in any way whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And then Moody, right? I knew that. Yep. Perfectly <laughs> obvious. Wasn't confused at all. <laughs> and so she's, that's, that's kind of bone saying, look, I'm, I'm telling you that I recognize this because I'm telling you, I'm, I'm demonstrating that I'm not an idiot. I, I saw your true nature at a glance. And like, I, I'm telling you that there, that Dumbledore seems to have miscalculated stuff here. Um, I realize I'm doing all the talking, so go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and that's, and we spent, there was, I mean, we've been talking about it kind of everything that was the, the preamble to this, but like, it feels like half or more of this chapter was devoted to this idea of, um, of Bones being super uncomfortable with the idea of suddenly making Harry the most powerful wizard in the world uh, just because of a letter from Dumbledore. Um, so a lot of that ha- is that this like negotiation between, you know, among the four of them, but mostly between Harry and Bones about like, how is this going to roll out? And like the, the fallout from this is that basically, you know, Bones is going to be the prime minister of all the things uh, in like in, in fact, and functionally that, and that while Harry does have the line of Merlin unbroken, that they're going to, they're not going to let anybody know that basically. so that like Harry is the king of everybody, but we're all going to pretend that it's Amelia bones. Um, 
And yeah. I thought it was sort of interesting like, that, that this big negotiation going on this whole time and like them working that out about like Bones bringing up all of these extremely valid points about like, why the fuck would we make an 11 year old kid the head of everything? Um, and then kind of like, you know, sorting that out about how it's going to work. Um, I thought it was, it was a very, like the, the character of Bones in the, in this chapter, it was a, it's a very interesting character and I like how it was like put together, but it felt like it's almost like this is a completely different Amelia Bones from the other one we saw, who is also a very interesting character that I liked, but they, these two feel very disconnected. Like this is some, this one felt like some new character who was kind of well put together and, and I liked, but like, it didn't feel like it was the same Amelia Bones we knew up to this point. I think that we didn't really know Bones that closely. It always saw us that she is a no-nonsense, badass bitch, right? Yeah. And so we're kind of getting that here, but she seems to have more deference to Dumbledore when we first met her than she had. Yeah, now. this yeah, this one's sort of like like a like a cynical, jaded politician, old woman thing. It's like a, a very interesting character and, and well done. Like, but and the other one though is kind of like the very almost like military feeling, badass, very functional kind of thing. They're both well done and kind of like interesting characters, but they feel like not the same thing. So um, it does feel, it feels like there's a disconnect between these two. They're both kind of cool though. Like, so but yeah, I kept, I kept being struck by this like kind of sense of a disconnect. Like, wait, this is new. This doesn't seem like the character that I knew up to this point. Yeah. I think I hear what you're saying. I, I think that we're just seeing more of the character, but it is a different side of that person for sure. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like, but you also kind of like, especially the age, I guess it's not super important, but she definitely, I, I was noticing descriptions of her being older more. It's, that was kind of my, my, my more visceral, visceral impression was just that like, Oh wait, she's older than I thought she was up till this point. Was that, did that kind of strike you the same way or as what way that, that she came across as sort of like older, in this yeah. chapter than she had up until this point. I think it was just emphasized more, but yeah, it definitely came across that way. She even says like, you know, look, I'm, I'm old, uh, yeah. Harry Potter, but and I'm not without, you know, whatever, uh, she's something like knowledge of mysteries or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like this Amelia bones reads to me as like a seven year old woman and the Amelia bones back in Azkaban reads like a 50 year old woman. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know how important that is, but yeah, they feel like it's a different vibe of the kind of character coming across, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I like the, um, there was the funny bit too, where, uh, well, so McGonagall politely points out, be like, Hey, you know, uh, can't Harry just instruct the line that Madame Bones is regent for the oh, yeah. chief warlock, but not anything to do with the department of mysteries or whatever. And it's like, and everybody's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess totally. Oh sure. yeah. Common sense. <laughs> I kind of forgot. Oh um, yeah. That would work. And then Harry's like, yeah, sure. But, um, and then he's kind of like, he's hemming and hawing a lot here. So and everybody kind of like stops. are like, oh, what the fuck is the kid right. saying now? But he's like, uh, I think there's some things that might prove politically controversial. And um, if I'm going to give uh, Madam Bones the line, I might, I want her uh, her cooperation on some things. And mm-hmm. um, I like this too. She says, I'm indignant at your request. Your, hesit- your hesitancy has told me that you're weak and unused to bargaining. It'll probably fold <laughs> if I push back. And that's funny for us because we've I mean, seen how Harry... Yeah. responds when he's pushed when he's trying to make a bargain so it's just like okay look here's where we're at i'm not going to interfere with your job on a day-to-day or month-to-month basis but at some point i'm gonna have to hand you an order can you handle that and she says and if i say no he says then i'll find someone else but i think we should stick to double plan as closely as possible because we don't know why he did what he did um 
<laughs> you know, like, sort of like the, the kind of the upper hand negotiations vibe to that. He's like, okay, I, can, I mean, I would prefer not to have to find somebody else, but that's totally on the table. So what do you want, bitch? Right. So he, he, he just demonstrates kind of neatly like, oh yeah, folding is not what's going to happen here. Yeah. I, will, I will kick you to the curve like that. <laughs> um, I prefer not to though. Yeah. I prefer not to. I'm trying to be nice and trying to, trying to play smart, you know, cause he doesn't want to tell them, but it's like Dumbledore clearly had all the foreknowledge anyone could ever have. And he gave the line to you. Maybe there's something important there, and let's not fuck around with his plans. Um, there's the 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 bit too. So he gets the he she hands him the line, and it says, "And the moment Harry, that Harry took it in his hand, nothing happened." Um, mm-hmm. Not like the like when he yeah. picked up the Elder Wand. There was like this you know peen of music in his head, and it was like dramatic. And this just like doesn't do anything. And then you think about it, like you know Merlin, the famous. Uh, whatever wizard god his final legacy is a is like a little stick and like he's like oh yeah merlin is not one given to melodrama like this is the reason that his final legacy looks like the stick is because all it needs for its function um so then he he appoints her as regent and uh um which i I think guess it's important that the stick knows that 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 part was like, I'm like, okay, okay. Like, I guess I can take like you know, complex commands. The now she's prime minister, as opposed to just sort of like being the case. That yeah, weird to me. I think that there's, you know, yeah, you can just kind of wave your hand and say magic at this point. But like, there's there's some way magically that Dumbledore told the the line that Harry is your Harry is my successor, but Amelia Bones will be the regent until Harry, uh, whatever, until it's like until he defeats Voldemort. Um, and so that's why the line wasn't responding to Amelia Bones because Voldemort was already defeated. And so I think what was going to happen if things went according to Dumbledore's plan was like Dumbledore was going to die. And then, then they'd spend, you know, years and years fighting Voldemort during which uh, the the line would have been um, Amelia Bones is. But so I guess whatever it is, he can he can tell the stick like, all right, you're to follow Madame Bones' orders, but you really belong to Harry Potter until Voldemort's gone. Oh, look, he's gone. So now you're now you're Harry Potter's again. Um yeah, and I guess like the practical importance of that is really just though like while she's trying to run the wizard gamut that if anybody bothers to check the validity of her leadership that the stick will say yes, she is the leader. Like, yeah, it doesn't and- actually do anything important other than give her the, you know, the validity of her role. Yeah, I think the way that that's demonstrated like just in the obvious like uh you know, here's the badge that says this works. It's like when she taps the podium that Dumbledore was tapping yeah. during that during her thing, like it magically compels everyone to shut up and look at her, yeah. um, which is kind of cool. But yeah, like and that the, 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 the like the real importance of it is just to sort of like verify the you know the validity of the of the role. It's not, it doesn't do anything practically important other than communicate to everybody that it's legit, right? And as far as anyone knows, I think other than Harry um, and Dumbledore, that the, the line isn't just used to tap the podium and get everyone's attention. Like there's other important shit that it does. Yeah. So and that's what, that part's kind of vague though. Like we don't really know what that is. Like, yes, there's something to it, but we don't know. Yeah. It's a, it might be a key to somewhere in the department of mysteries or something. We don't know, but yeah. So then Harry's like, okay, well, uh, oh, so she says, I will not say it's been a pleasure doing business with you boy who lives, yeah. but it could have been much worse. Thank you kindly for that. And then he's kind of just like, okay, well, any weirdness you'd brought to Dumbledore while he was around. And, she says, okay, well, there's three things. And the first one is that uh, it's not clear how the Death Eaters died because it it was mm. just transfigured stuff. So it wasn't like their heads were magically cut off. They were regularly cut off. Um, she, very, but she, 
she doesn't say it explicitly, but she's like, I know there's more to this fuckery than you're letting on, but I guess you're not going to tell us. Yeah. Harry just says, I don't think this is a matter you need to investigate too hard, Madam Bones. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, um, then she says, yeah, I, I guess especially because now since they all, they are the only ones that know, but they do know that, okay, yeah, it was really Harry and no Voldemort's not dead. He's the ring on your finger right now. Um, so that while she's, what when she says like oh and all of their heads magically fell off she knows there's got to be a lot more to that story um and that it directly involves harry and i and we're just not going to go into it yep he's like yeah don't worry about it <laughs> um, then, yeah heads falling what, what ifs don't no be and then there's this brief moment moment of panic that harry gets because she says there's a possibility that augustus rookwood left a ghost and he's just like exercise it before anyone talks to it and then she's just like, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this is where he's like, yeah, we found a living arm with Voldemort's shit. And it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Bellatrix's arm. Be like, what, what does that mean? Like a living arm? I guess it's still warm. And okay, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Magic. Magic, man. Does some weird shit. Yeah, and he's like, yeah. So I guess put out an APB for, you know, emaciated one armed witch. That looks like Helena Bonham Carter. Right. <laughs> um, then uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Then the third bit of mystery was that Sirius Black's corpse was discovered and his head was discovered at the um, the graveyard. Yeah. Like, and so the, like the way this all plays out. So then, then Harry sort of deduces that. So the, the big confusing part of that is that, wait, Sirius Black is dead, but Sirius Black is also alive and well and imprisoned inside Azkaban. So what the fuck is up with that? And so Harry figures out that, oh, that's actually not Sirius Black in Azkaban. That's Peter Pettigrew um, transformed. That Peter Pettigrew's, uh, what do they call it? A metamorpha megas something, something. Um, Peter Pettigrew's a shapeshifter who has looked like uh, Sirius Black all of this time and went so insane that he doesn't know to stop looking like Sirius Black and nobody believes him when he shrieks about not being Sirius Black because now he's just gone insane in Azkaban. So Harry figures out that like, oh wait, Peter Pettigrew was framed forever ago and that's the dude you've been torturing in Azkaban all this time. Um, I like just the sort of the, I like this very like drawn with a broad brush and just kind of left to us to fill in the details, this idea that there's this like super evil um, Gary Oldman <laughs> floating around. like there's this <laughs> other story that we haven't been told of this like very dark awful serious black that you know went on living you know in secret um, everybody thinking he's in prison but he's not actually and that no he's not the nice character we all you know thought from the originals but that he really was this like horrible horrible person um, so I like that sort of like just sort of implying this whole other backstory of this other possibly interesting other story that just sort of, we, you know, we get told that like, Oh, here's this other thing that might've happened and just kind of left us to imagine what was going on. That was kind of cool. Yeah. It's fun. Like this was a, a change that uh, was surprising and subverted expectation. And that I kind of really enjoyed, like I liked, I like serious black a lot from the originals and I think everyone does, but I think the author was like, well, you know, we're not going to get to the whole serious black thing because we're not doing three books. And like, let's just think about like, what would be more like a kind of more fun way to wrap this up rather than like, leave it as this empty strand of, well, maybe it's actually Sirius Black is innocent in Azkaban. And so they're like, yeah, you know what? Uh, let's, let's make him the evil guy. And uh, we'll have that be just this kind of fun little twist at the end. And there's actually, um, when Dumbledore is in Azkaban, marching through it with Fox, 
uh, he's paused outside of a door and there's somebody muttering to themselves, I'm not serious, but it's spelled like seriously. And mm. Fox is screaming outside that door and then Dumbledore keeps going. So Fox catches up to him. That was probably, uh, I think it's definitely Peter Pettigrew's cell. So he's in there mm. saying, I'm not serious black. And um, uh, nobody believes him because people lie to get out of Azkaban all the time. So, yeah, I like that idea that they like described as like, like he's so very just the being tortured inside Azkaban so quickly drives somebody entirely insane that then everything he would say just sounds like you know the jibberings of a crazy person yeah he can't calmly explain to the guards or something like hey look just you know take me out put me under whatever any guards you need and let me get a little scrap of magic back so I can change back into my normal shape and you guys will see that like he's not apparently able to articulate that or they're not willing to listen but yeah, he can't change back because the being around all those Dementors saps your magic away. It apparently takes magic yeah. to use your Metamorph Magus powers. Um, yeah. Anyway, so then- I like just like, like the idea of like we sort of like casually drop this reference to this whole other interesting story. It's, it's almost like oh hey, if somebody wanted to go off and tell this story, there's this like kind of whole interesting ten years of like okay, what what did Sirius Black do? For the, what did this evil Sirius Black do during these 10 years? Like that's this whole possibility of these, this other storyline. That's, it's kind of fun to just have that kind of implied and dropped and walked away from. Yeah. All we know is that he told Voldemort when Voldemort came back, he's like, yeah, no, I fled, I fled Britain in cowardly fear of Dumbledore. So all, mm-hmm. all we know is that, uh, well, that's what Mr. Grimm said was that. I'll just say, you know, I'm not connecting that back. That's specifically who that was. So all of that dialogue between the two. Oh, that is cool. I like that. Yeah, so whatever he's up to, he he fled the country. Um, Anyway, so then they kind of frantically like, oh, we got to get him the fuck out of there. And then as Amelia's getting up to like run to the fireplace, Harry's like, hold up a minute. And uh, he's like, there's four things we need to discuss before. (laughs) But I love the point that he brought. So totally brought us back to grass. (laughs) Harry's like, he's been in prison for 10 years, something, something. We have important shit to talk about. It's okay if he's in prison for five more minutes. Um, so, so I'll, I'll just leave that there. Okay. We'll leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, he says, first, I want a list of all the theaters that went to Azkaban while Lucius was distracted. And can you compile that by tonight? And she's like, within the hour. Okay, great. Second, Azkaban's over. Make preparations to move people, to move the prisoners to Nurmengard or other secure non-dementor prisons and provide treatment for their dementor exposure. And this is kind of where, you know, I think every good person realizes Azkaban's terrible, but they kind of just, you know, for societal yeah. and political reasons, they can't get on the podium and say that. Well, I like there was also that weird kind of practical thing that they that they said was that like, oh, you can't shut it down because uh, I can't remember if it was Bones or McGonagall that said it, but it was basically the Dementors need to be fed. Right. And if we, if we shut down Azkaban, then what are we going to do with this problem? So it had this weird creepy sense of like oh this like penal system we've designed was partially just to solve the problem of we have these evil demons you know wandering the earth and we need to make sacrifices to them and this also solves that problem like which is a very much not at all the like okay walking through the ethics of this what would we want to do it's like no well you know so almost like that the setup of azkaban was this convenient way to also solve this other problem yeah, we've got these um, soul-sucking monsters running around, and they'll stop running around soul-sucking if we put, you know, if we put them near if we food. Give them souls to suck, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like how fucked up that was, and it's like, okay, so if, you know, if if Harry didn't, if the ability to destroy Dementors wasn't there as an option, then nobody really had a good solution to this problem. Because okay, yeah, we can start doing the ethical thing with how we 
treat our prisoners, but well, shit, there's still like, you know, demons watering the earth and we haven't figured out how to solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of all that, um, like explaining about how, uh, the Dementors and stuff work, Harry says, look, it doesn't matter because I'm pretty sure that Hermione Granger is going to go there and is going to destroy all the Dementors there. And then that's where Amelia puts it together where she's like, oh, that's what happened to the Dementor that Dumbledore lost. That's why they're afraid of you. What is all <laughs> this? And um, they're, you know, Moody and, and uh, Bones haven't spent that much time around Harry to have their minds blown by random shit like this. So this is her, this is their first, uh, there should be a word for getting your mind blown this way. But uh, I like it was sort of like Harry kind of lets them think like this is just something that's going to happen almost you know, because of Hermione's own volition, but like, we can kind of tell like, like this is on his to-do list of like, Oh, by the way, when Hermione gets back, I need to tell her to go destroy Azkaban. Right. And he says, if, you know, if, whether or not Hermione could have believed the death could be defeated before she'll believe it now. Um, and he says that an authorized port key to Azkaban would be appreciated, but I think she might make her own way there. Um, and this is where he's kind of like starting to freak out. Uh, I forgot. I mean, he's crying because things yeah, are experienced. Yeah. 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 And he says that uh, there's this line about um, Harry was crying now, huge ragged breaths bursting from him, but he couldn't, he didn't stop talking somewhere out there. Peter Pettigrew was waiting while Harry cried somewhere out there. Everyone was waiting while he cried. And this is, I like this where he just kind of sets this up somewhere in, inside the wards of Hogwarts in a highly defensible position, but where emergency cases could be port keyed from, in from outside the wards. There's going to be a high security hospital with powerful guards who have taken unbreakable vows. I don't care how much it costs. It doesn't matter. Moody is going to design the security architecture and go completely overboard on paranoia without being constrained mm-hmm. by budget or sanity or common sense. <laughs> yeah, and it just like totally makes Moody like sticks out as like the, like your it security guy. Right. Imagine <laughs> like you're like, like, okay, all your paranoia is like, this is where you're allowed to just unleash it. Right. It. And, but, but an it security guy where they're actually given a budget and the team to do what they need to mm-hmm. do. So he's, he's in the, also, like, in the once like in a lifetime the, circumstance where he's being allowed to do the responsible thing. <laughs> I also like the vibe, like we, like this is the point, like it's starting to dawn on Harry, sort of the gravity of what's going on now, like the power that he's got having the stone and everything that it implies, like the, the, the weight of, okay, now what I'm capable of doing, basically, you know, I can cure all of humanity of death and how important that is. Like, the the gravity of all of that's now hitting him and and that's why like he's starting to cry and and then setting up these things of like okay basically we're going to turn hogwarts into anti-death central um but just like the the size of what he he's he's realizing how big a deal it is that he's got this and then the importance of the decisions he makes from this point yeah it's a i i i really like the the way it's put out because it's one thing to make this like you know up until whatever last night for Harry, this was like a long-term goal for him was like, yep, I'm going to use magic and science to solve death. And now he's got the, the death solving brick yeah. in his pocket. Oh, now like, that I can do that. Like now, important we get on this shit. right now it's like, Oh shit, this isn't just like my, my ambition anymore. Now people are dying because I'm sitting here explaining this shit to everybody. And for everybody we lose between now and when the hospital opens, that's on me. Um, yeah. And I, <laughs> I'm not sure what five kilos transfers into uh, as far as galleons, but he pulls out a five kilo chunk of gold. And chunk. He's like, here's your starting budget. <laughs> um, I know. What is this? What is it? Like three or five? I guess that's not that two because gold's very heavy. So what? Five kilos is like two or three pounds? Or no, it's the opposite. It's like 10 pounds. Yeah. 10, it's 12 pounds. 
But I mean, that's, that's a, a considerable that's a, amount of gold. That's like, that's like, yeah, that's like a that's a baseball of gold. Yeah, Boink. So I think that uh, I mean the coins are light enough to carry a hundred of them at a time, right? So uh, whatever it is, this is a lot of galleons. Uh, that's a bit. So um, then he explains to them, "Hey, uh, Flamel." He, explain, he tells them about the philosopher's stone, yeah. um, and that you know this whole time, Moody, you know Flamel could have fixed your leg and given you back your eye. Um, it, it, whenever he felt like it, he could have fixed everyone's problems. He says, Dumbledore didn't know. I'm sure he didn't know. And then this is where- All he- this where, like the weird, uh, politics might be the wrong word for it, but just like the reality of there's kind of nothing inherent to Harry being the boy who lived or his whole thing. He's He's just the dude who happens to have the stone on him at the moment. And there's no reason that you couldn't point a gun at his head and take it from him. And then suddenly- everything gets real fucking weird. Um, so it just, it was kind of a interesting, the, the tension around that. Cause he just happens to be the guy that has it. There's nothing. It's not like the things magically bonded to him and it's the, you know, it will only answer to him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This isn't the line uh, of Merlin. This is just a yeah. rock that if anyone has it, they get to use it. Yeah. So it's this like super politically hot potato, um, that there'll be, that will end up being a lot of, you know, tension and pressure on a lot of people to like the possession of that thing is now the single most important thing on the planet. Um, and there's nothing inherent to Harry that, you know, gives him control of it other than the fact that he's the person that holds onto it right now. Yeah. I wonder, you know, if the, when they open this hospital, if the fact that it's powered by the philosopher's stone will be something that is publicly available knowledge. Yeah. Um, because yeah, like at this point, like Moody could just come and, you know, clock Harry over the head, take the goddamn thing. And now he's ruler of the universe. Yeah. But because There's nothing's stopping that happening right now, other than the fact that Moody's a good guy. Yeah. I think that that's the reasonable gamble Harry made here by telling everyone that he's in a room of people that he can trust. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, all it takes is one ambitious asshole. Try and take this mm-hmm. thing. Right. Um, yeah. Which is why you give Mad-Eye Moody a mountain of gold and all the uh, license to go nuts on paranoia. So and that he says something about guards uh, who've taken unbreakable vows, and so like you know he he's already thinking of like let's go over the top with keeping this thing protected. Um, yeah, that but, was kind yeah. of weird. Like as you kind of as I roll through this in my head, like how much of this whole theory of what's going from here is kind of relying on the idea of the benevolent dictator. I mean, this all of this only works because you trust the intent of the four people in this room. Um, and how does that fall apart? Later? It's almost like, you know, insanely powerful things are double-edged swords. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, we talked about this last week with, um, you know, nuclear nuclear power, uh, as Carl Sagan put it. It's like, I think he says, it's like there was a God who gave us these things and, and gave us a choice. Um, you know, like if, if you have the Philosopher's Stone, this is about the nicest thing you could do with it. You know, yeah. you don't you don't hide away in your fortress for 600 years like Flamel did. Um you know, you, you, you try very safely to make it a public good. Um, as far as benevolent dictators go, I'd take that, you know, I'd, I'd sign up to, to live in that society. Uh, if the, if the dictator yeah, was that it, benevolent it about wonder, it. Like, like how would this, you know, if this was something remotely like this was actually happening, like the weird, ugly reality politics of things that would go on, there would be some lame, you know, pedestrian bullshit that people were deciding to then bargain over like how did, how would this play out like 
It the whole go, rely rely on the benevolent dictator thing is not a that, that does not scale as a political philosophy. Yeah, it's um, a, so it makes me wonder. Like, it's, I mean, it like totally works in the story, but it, it just makes me wonder. Like, how would this play out if you do have this kind of magical totem of ultimate power that could go anywhere? And then, how does that play out? That would be like seriously that, that could turn in all kinds of fucked up weirdness. I mean, so you just have to picture of like if I'm trying to think of uh, anyone who's involved in like scientific advancement that's a billionaire that's not bill gates name an evil billionaire like uh whatever insert insert yeah, you're have to go like it's, i mean it's a weird scenario i played out um i, I i'm you, thinking you city on the planet mars being muskville and because elon musk is this very complicated like not good but not bad dude and all the complications that come from that he's kind of a psycho doing very very cool things um, so yeah, you're like, oh, you know, if you know, give that person way too much power, how does that play out? Like, oh, that's that's good and bad. Yeah. So like, imagine if uh, if Bill Gates invented or you know, what well, found funded or whatever and owned the cure to aging. I, I, I think Bill Gates would give it to everybody. Um, you know, if it was somebody else, the way this would work out is that it would cost a lot, and rich people would be able to afford it, right? Um, you know, if Harry was less nice he would charge ten thousand dollars a head to use the philosopher's stone right um or more than that but the thing is since it can also make money there's not really a point and he's nice even if it costs a lot he'd probably still put it available to free for free um yeah and then you get in just all kinds of weird ideas of like okay well then what's the order of like it's you can cure a lot of people, but that's not quite enough to cure every single problem on the planet in real time. So what's the priority of who gets in line first and all these weird, just kind of pedestrian lamenesses around the decisions that need to happen, like actually then end up becoming important and political and all kinds of fucked up and petty. Yeah. Um, the, the presumably the old and the, the injured and the dying will get first, first in line. But, um, yeah, once once it gets down to all right, we've solved all the emergency cases. Now who's up? Um, you know, again, the stone being healed yeah, right, by yeah, it. And this one is like, oh, but uh, the British people first, right? And then, and then, oh yeah, so, I mean, yeah, all kinds of fucked up weirdness starts getting into that. The it's other, sort of interesting. To think about. The other thing too is that it doesn't make you immortal. It just you know reverses aging, right? So like, you'll need another dose in seventy years or something. So like. This this is this isn't the kind of thing where you get the shot once and you're good for for a million years. This is going to be like a constant churning, and as the population grows, this might become less tenable. And and that kind of like and that's sort of kind of explicitly the way the whole line of Merlin unbroken thing is that as far as that bit of power is concerned, Dumbledore was God Emperor, and the next God Emperor is whoever he decided ought to be. So it's this very weird kind of Kim Jong Un thing <laughs> of. Like I'm just the all powerful one and the next person is just whoever I decide that should be. And we're sort of all trusting that apparently it's been the right people being chosen for that every time. So it is. And that's, it seems like that. And that's so sort of like baldly, like not workable, like the way it's set up in this story is like, okay, clearly that's not a situ- like, that's not a sane way to do these things. So it's sort of like given to us as like, okay, here's this very precarious political situation that all this is being tossed into. Yeah. That that's spelled out by Harry explicitly where he's talking about like how, yes, it makes sense to have all the dangerous stuff or whatever sealed, but you know, if you don't want to destroy it, but it needs to be out of public circulation. Sure. But like the line might be, you know, uh, have this, this, uh, 
whatever characteristic I'm picturing, like Thor's hammer, we're going to reject the obviously unworthy. But if this is going to keep going for another million years, like at some point, the line will fall into hands that are subtly, that are too subtly flawed for the line to detect and all hell will break loose. Um, And I like this is, this seems like a very Yudkowsky technique he has where if he has an unsolved problem, he makes it look very conspicuously unsolved and then just like drops it in the middle of the table for you to stare at. Like this whole thing, like the arbitrariness of how the line of Merlin unbroken is chosen is so clearly lame. Um, it's he just kind of sort of leaves it there for us to look at as he like, okay, that is how this problem works of, you know, how do you hand authority around? Cause this clearly is not a good, great way to do it. Yeah. I like that. That's a good point. You know, it, rather than just like, let this be a, a thing for people to be like, well, wait, how does this work? Well, isn't this a big problem? He just points out, yeah, this is a big problem. And uh, it's the best word. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's how the world like, is working. Like, yeah. yeah. Here's a problem. And I'm not pretending to you that I've told you like the way to solve it. It's just, here it is. Yeah, I like that. Um, and he does that in a few different ways. I think, and that's kind of a big, the whole like psychopathy of Quirrell. Like he just sort of like sets that out there and never, uh, he never tries to put a resolution to it or justification to it. It's just like, okay, this is, here's a way you ought not be. <laughs> right. Um, let's see. Oh yeah. So then the the fourth thing that Harry, he said, hold on, we got four things to talk about. And he, he can't say the fourth thing. Um which yeah, was, and that's, I mean, it's, did I understand that right? That's basically the, oh my God, this thing is so powerful that humanity will end itself if we just hand these keys over. And that's where he sort of like invisibly makes the decision right in the moment. Like, oh, I can't even tell them about this. It's not even a decision. He, so what, what his fourth thing was, was that he wanted to start taking down the statute of secrecy and start getting ready to heal muggles on a mass scale. Like keeping magic hidden, he wants to do away with that. But- it says that his, his lips couldn't move, not wouldn't, couldn't, and that this this the vow was stopping him from trying to do that. Oh, I didn't put that together. He says that. So he realizes that this is universe-destroying information, and the vow does not allow me right. to start talking about it. Oh, I, I hadn't grabbed that. Okay. Harry would have tried to deny the thought, rationalize it away, but he couldn't do that either. It wasn't a thing Harry Potter could do. Like water flowing downhill, Harry Potter would take no chances when it came not to de- when it came to not destroying the world. Yeah, I'd, it's, as I was reading that, I hadn't put that together with the unbreakable vow part of that. That's kind of yeah, that's kind of cool to think about. It's already stopped him from making a plausibly catastrophic error. Um, in any case, mm-hmm. so then uh, McGonagall or uh, Bones is like, all right, what comes forth? And uh, who is looking like she'd been hit repeatedly in the face with a planet? <laughs> <laughs> Um, he's like, never mind, Chief Warlock Bones. I've given the Regency of the Wizard Gamut to you. Uh, please use it to announce internationally that the Stone's healing power, power. Oh, I guess it is internationally first. So that's nice of him. Um, the Stone's <laughs> healing power will be made available to all. He's a good benevolent dictator. Yeah. I mean, well, even even if you're not being uh, selfish, it might just make sense. Like, let's keep the small scale first so that we don't open ourselves up to problems. But he's like, no, we're going to, you know, this is this is public. We're going to try and get this out and fix everybody we can. Um, yeah, and I like the way he what he phrased to McGonagall was he's like, well, okay, we don't have to, but if anybody gives a shit about the whole we're gonna heal all of humanity thing, then we will just declare Hogwarts as its own independent nation. Right. Because fuck all y'all. We don't we don't need the ministry for money or even food anymore. Yeah, we don't need fucking anything anymore. We're going to unkill people from now on. Yeah. I you know, it might still be politically expedient to to stay in line with the country and the you know, all that because if they were to secede and have to use the stone to make food to feed the students, that would take away from valuable healing times. So. Right, like, yeah, he's like, but Minerva, don't make that a deal breaker. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, 
we're good regardless. Yeah. And then it ends with, uh, he says, somebody has to tell Remus Lupin. Um, yeah. What do, so I didn't get that. What does that, what is he saying when he says that? Uh, the significance of that was lost on me. I think about Pet, uh, Peter Pettigrew. Just Pettigrew. Uh, oh, just the fact that they were such like close friends, the whole right. Sirius Black, Peter Pettigrew, Remus Lupin. Okay. Right now, Sirius, or Peter Pettigrew, or Remus Lupin believes that Pettigrew was killed and uh, Sirius Black is in prison. So he's like, you know what? They were best friends. Someone and call him. And thinks that Pettigrew was a traitor. Exactly. That's what everybody thinks Pettigrew is a traitor when, in fact, he's just been like the good guy that's been tortured for 10 years. Right. So someone someone call Lupin and let him know, hey, sorry, we, we've got Pettigrew here. Um, anyway, yeah. So that's uh, that's this chapter. This is my, like I said. So that's one chapter. Yeah. <laughs> just two more to go. What I like about this is like, um, th- this was the one, it's hard for me to, articulate exactly what it is and especially without spoilers for uh, death note this anime that i liked when i uh, came out when i was in high school um but like this this the the posthumous dumbledore and here's all the pieces that i put together and put in place for you um all of that feels like there's just this badass kind of nature to that where like uh okay here i'm, I'm showing my hand and as you'll see i've lined everything up this way you know nothing was an accident how much was silently going on for all of the all the interactions that we now remember with Dumbledore? How much was actually going on, you know, in his head while that was going on? Exactly. Yeah, so, and we were just saying before we started recording, like how, like not, in these three chapters, nothing actually happens. No, no plot is advanced in the terms of events, but like how much is sort of laid out explaining the significance of all the things that have happened up to, up until this point. Cause these chapters are all just entirely people talking about shit in McGonagall's office. Yeah. Maybe um, I don't understand what it, it means. For, explains everything. Maybe I don't know what it means for a plot to happen, but I feel like saying, all right, look, we're going to announce to the world that we have the philosopher's stone and that healing is made available to everybody. That sounds like plot advancement. Yeah, I guess that, yeah but it, it'd be a, uh, yeah, but that's only like a decision to do a thing. That's, that's true. This thing happening. Yeah, he's lining yeah, up dominoes. Actually, the importance of things that have happened and the decision to do things that are going to happen. There's lots of big, big stuff, but the actual the things actually happening don't don't happen in, in these few chapters. It's all sort of an explanation of the things, uh, of the significance of what has happened and the plans for things to come. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot for us to talk about because we've been talking about it. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting. Like, it's more like digesting the significance of things rather than like those things actually happening. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there, the announcement wasn't made in this chapter. It was just uh, yeah. getting things set up. So, uh, yeah. and most of this was actually like there's that, but it's it's most of this has been us then starting to understand the significance of everything that has happened. Like we're we're now starting to get the explanation for everything and going to be like, oh, that's what was happening. Um, so yeah yeah well we only have two chapters left which means we only have uh, another three hours so um <laughs> next chapter draco yeah actually there's like there's uh I, I think probably less to talk about with these next two chapters because there's more just sort of like tying up those plot points because <clears throat> yeah i'll say i was being funny draco, these are man. these are tiny chapters yeah um so this one opens up with, yeah. with draco sitting in an office near where the once deputy headmistress once held court um, he's sitting there and he's just like kind of reminiscing on the fact that like, yep, everyone's fucking dead. Uh, even Vincent and Gregory have left because, you know, their, their mothers took them back. Um, and there's no reason that they should serve house Malfoy anymore because all the alliances are gone. Cause all the, the shot callers are all dead. So, um, 
And then, it, yeah, this was like super, it was like painful. It's like, we're brought back to thinking like, oh yeah, there's this whole other, you know, end to this storyline with Draco and his father has just been murdered and the whole relationship between Harry, Harry and Draco that you're like, oh, this is fucked up. And there's like no good outcome to this. This just sucks. So you're like, oh, it's kind of like the, the emotional weight to that. We've been too distracted from it, but now we're coming back to you. You're like, oh, there's no, there's no nice outcome for this. This just sucks. I do like we're, we're given a, a really nice, um, if not a fully nice outcome. We're given a, a very nice, uh, I don't know, band aid for it. Not even band aid. We're, we're given a nice uh, medicine for it at the end of this chapter. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Draco's yeah. Draco's future isn't entirely this grim bummer. Yeah. What's her name? Nancy, I think. We get we get to see that Draco gets reunited with who we thought was the dead Narcissa Malfoy. Yeah. Has been a, a mind fucked Australian the whole time. <laughs> that sounds much more like Dumbledore, doesn't it? All right. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stage a gruesome murder in her bedroom when in fact all I did was mind wipe her and drop her in Australia <laughs> and set her up <laughs> with a pension from the government that, you know <laughs> um it's a, it's enough to live comfortably. And I think it was uh, like Dumbledore or Harry found like a letter in the Phoenix egg room that said, this is the final weapon to be used against Lucius Malfoy or something. Um, it's uh, it's awesome. Anyway, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Not that far ahead because this chapter is 90 seconds long, but um, basically Harry comes in and he tells, tells Draco, look, you need to decide what's going to happen next. And the only way for you to do that is for you to be looped in, but you can't stay looped in. So we're going to have to, this is going to be kind of a closed loop conversation and I know this was weird. It was a weird, I wasn't even sure how to take this because, because so he's like, okay, Drake, I'm going to tell you all the things. I'm going to tell you that I murdered your father. And then you could decide whether you want to have anything to do with me, which like on that part seems very sort of like even handed and like the ethical way to go. But then part implied in all of that though is, but by the way, I'm going to play God and whatever you decide here is going to decide whether or not you get to remember us having this conversation. I think which that, is very that, like uncomfortably complicated to to the less it's slightly less uncomfortable in the fact that he was going to wipe his mind, memory either way, yeah. um, like so he was going to let him decide and then honor the decision he made while he is fully informed, but not let him stay fully informed because as it is, Draco's not a perfect Occlumens and he's going to tell him everything about Tom Riddle, about uh, uh, presumably including um, Quirrell and everything. Um, it was oh. weird because it had this very kind of uncomfortable, like, oh, I've just, and I don't know that, like, what the better option was here, but it was very uncomfortable, like, oh, I've decided I'm going to play God here, and we're going to have this conversation, and I'm going to wipe your memory, um, and too bad that you don't get a say in this whole decision. Um, yeah, it's, it's like you said, it, it's uh, it's uncomfortable, but there, it's hard yeah. to find a better alternative. Yeah, you're not the, sure what to do, but you're like, oh, this feels yucky. I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what the. I mean, yeah, his only other option is like, let's just continue lying to Draco forever. Exactly. So this seems better than not, but somehow not great. Yeah. Yeah, he straight up tells him like, "Yes, I'm the one who killed your father and all the other Death Eaters last night. I didn't think about you or Theodore or Vincent and Gregory, but if I had, I'd have done it anyway." Yeah, um, yeah he's very sort of like baldly unforgiving of himself like very realistically he's not trying to pull any punches right on he he has the greatness of the things he did yeah he's not saying well if i'd known better or you know it was the right thing he's just saying look i had to because they were going to fucking shoot me and 
you know, but, but and I would do it again. Right. And that sucks, but I guess, but I don't know any better than, so yeah. And so, you know, he almost says like, I would do it again as a way of even like less excusing himself. He's like, Oh, I'm not trying like, Oh, it's not because, Oh, I had no choice, blah, blah, blah. This is a terrible thing I've done to you. And I'm still even in this moment owning that I would, I would still do it. And I'm very, very sorry. He, he does offer the, um, like the, the one caveat that like, look, I wouldn't have killed your dad if he wasn't there. Right. Yeah. Like I, di- I didn't go out of my way to kill all the death eaters last night. I only killed all the ones who were in my way and he happened to be in the line of fire. But if he wasn't there and I could have pressed a button to kill him, I wouldn't have pressed the button. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the way how like Harry was very, very brutally honest about what he did. Yeah. yeah it was kind of cool. Like the transparency of that was kind of admirable to see. Yeah. He says, you know, uh, another part of me from a moral standpoint, the death eaters signed away their lives and the day they signed up with Voldemort, they pointed up their wands at me first, blah, 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 and so on. But right now, I just feel sick about everything I've done to you. Again, I feel like everything I do only hurts you for all my good intentions. That sounds like a lot like Dumbledore. Um, and yeah, like, this conversation very much, it's sort of like this is, it sounded like the, this is the Harry that has learned things. But this is the Harry aware that he's not the same Harry he was at the beginning of the story. Yeah. And at the, at the end of it, Draco just says, you should die or you should hurt. And Harry's like, those aren't really options. And so when he tries to press Draco for an answer, like, do you want to, you know, what do you want to do here? Draco ends this, or basically he refuses to, refuses to decide. And then the time yeah, of that, that memory is just this kind of like, no, fuck you go away, which didn't have any sort of like logically thought out answer to it. It was just kind of a very real feeling, you know, like you just got told that your father was murdered by your friend. Yeah. And you're not going to respond rationally to that in any way. Yeah. And he, so even Draco in his head, he's thinking like, you know, I didn't, he didn't want to give the wars, the wars victor, their mutual friend or, and the mutual friends to abandon him, but he wasn't going to give Harry the absolution he wanted either. So like, I mean, he, he's even thinking of like the, whatever the outcomes, but it, like, that's not the point. The point is, he's like, how can I possibly decide what to do here? Fuck you. I'm not, I'm not deciding. So then McGonagall walks in and wipes his, or I think it was seals those memories away, which is different than wiping them, but whatever. Yeah. Was well, interesting that like, that was the kind of thing, like you would have wanted to like, okay, let's, figure out what decision he would come to if given enough time to consider it, blah, 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 but he's not. So his, his decision is only going to be the kind of gut reaction he has in that moment. But then the whole, like what, what and how are we going to wipe his brain are based on only the very short term decision he's able to make in the super heated moment of just having heard that his father was killed by his friend. Um, But that's kind of like the fucked up situation we're all presented with. And this is the best you can do. Yeah. But yeah, and I'm only like now talking through that, I don't know what the, how they could have expected it to be any different. It's not like you can't come back to him in a month to let him like calmly consider everything and decide what he wants to do. You're only going to get his raw emotional reaction in the moment of hearing that your father was murdered. Yeah, since you can't give him, you know, a week to process because yeah. that's a week where he'd be running around with this knowledge. Yeah, and that's like not a choice. Like you don't it's that's not an available option for you to do, so you're only stuck with this like okay, what's he going to say in the heat of the moment? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, I don't know. I like it, and it's optimal. It's it's sad, but I but I like it's it's a. What am I? I it all felt very real. I like that. It felt very real. Exactly. Like yeah. Of, thank you. Of, yeah. That's what I was trying to like. It's it's not saying and everything ended happily ever after for everyone involved. Yeah. And it's like no man, shit went down hard, and not everyone turned out great. You know. Yeah, and this one another one of those nice situations that reminded a lot of like the arguments that used to happen between Harry and Dumbledore where this feels more like you kind of took faith in the 
the story that you were telling, like you didn't know the outcome that like, this is just sort of, you, you set things up and put them in motion and then followed where it would logically go. Like maybe if you were going to try to orchestrate how the story ended, you would try to come up with something kind of more satisfying with how things ended with Draco and, and Harry, but this is just kind of the way like it played out. Like if you're just going to kind of sort of honor the fiction, the fiction that you've set up, this is how it has to go. And it's going to be this, this ugly, hurtful interchange between Harry and Draco. And that's just kind of that, that's the reality you built. So that's, that's where you got to go with it. But I like that. That's sort of like, there's sort of like a respect into this, the characters in the story you've made that like, okay, this is the reality that it is. So I've just got to tell that story. It's kind of cool. And however it ends, I don't imagine it ending like very happily. I don't imagine Draco going off to becoming, you know, a magical scientist and stuff. I think he's probably too hurt by all of this to, you know, pretend to go forward with anything. Right. Um, so, uh, (laughs) um, it's not funny. I just, this, uh, like then there's a line break and then it's Draco back. It's the same, uh, first chapter again, or the first paragraph again. And yeah, yeah, instead of Harry coming in, reminded me a lot of the way that we kept doing like a rewind with Hermione and Quirrell. Yeah. Like we're like in his mind erased version of the same scene. And uh, what's her name? Rowena Felthorn, uh, Snape's uh, whatever student assistant for helping the, the spew, which is. Oh, is she the same one from that weird, explicitly dungeon? not rapey scene? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't, I, now that you're saying that, I remember I didn't remember as I was reading it. Yeah. And it's uh, so anyway, instead of Harry walking in this time, it's McGonagall and she's like, yep, please come with me. And then Harry's standing there and Draco's just ignoring him. Harry is like, hey, you know, I found this parchment and, uh, you know, God, he, he I think he's trying again for one more answer, but like is more vague. He says, I don't want to tell you about it before because I thought it might prejudice your decision unfairly. And Draco has no idea what this before means. He yeah. says, if you're a good person who never killed or lied, we got to do one or the other, which would be worse. And Draco just ignores him. Um, <laughs> yeah, fuck off. And uh and you can sort of like see like Harry's disappointment, like he wanted some kind of like sign off on his behavior, but you're like, ah, you know, you're not going to get that so. exactly. And it's this is also you know the if you're a good person that ever killed or lied, but you had to do one, what would you do? He's now asking kind of in Dumbledore's stead, like you know Dumbledore's in a situation where he had to do something intense, so instead he lied to everybody and or not, you know lied to Lucius and you about killing your mom when in fact all he did was you know put her over in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess Britain has a history of putting their undesirables in Australia. Right? <laughs> um, true. So then we get a cut to uh, um, Nancy. I don't know if we get her last name um, laying in bed. And it's like this background about, you know, she doesn't really feel like she's at home here and she's got a hangover cause she's been drinking, you know, a lot for the last decade because nothing's felt the same and she's been depressed and um, like, Oh, it's, it's like, there's like the traffic accident that took her memories not just of a dead family that meant nothing to her now, but memories of like how a stove worked. So Dumbledore set her up with like this whole nice explanation of like, oh yeah, you don't remember how stoves work because you got in a car accident. That also explains why a check shows up in the mail every month. Um, so uh, then what is it? Like 6.31 in the morning and the, the doorbell rings and um, oh, Nancy Manson. That's what it was. Yeah, Narcissa Malfoy. Yeah, that's that's really funny. I, I, I was like, who is this? And it wasn't, I'm like, oh, Narcissa Malfoy. Like, okay. I like that the choice of the name Manson though. Yeah. And uh, I like this too. So McGonagall shoots a spell through the door. Nancy Swade putting hand to her forehead, flashes of light going through doors and hitting people. That was, that was, that wasn't particularly surprising. Um, <laughs> and her memories are, are coming back. And then there's, uh, it's this nice little moment. Um, Draco's standing there next to Professor McGonagall and uh, 
you know, she had never seen her son beyond being a baby. Right. Um, cause presumably this all went down, uh, before the war ended. So, um, yeah, it was confusing to read. Cause you'd be like, what is this scene? It wasn't until towards the end. You're like, Oh, like all these kind of pieces are, you know, coming together about what, what is this about? And it's not until the end you realize, Oh, this is, you know, Narcissus Malfoy, this is Draco that's going to show up. And you're like, Oh, okay. That's what's going on here. Yeah. And it's all very like differently. It's very kind of modern, you know, it's an apartment and, you know, we're in Australia. It's all very, you know, not at all Hogwarts vibe. So it's, it's like this kind of whiplash of the the vibe to the scene. Exactly. And luckily, you know, this little section break is short enough to read again. So it's yeah. like, Oh, now it makes sense. Yeah. But going through it the first time, it does have like that, exactly that, that, that jarring, like this doesn't yeah. feel right scene, which is great because that's exactly how she feels every morning when she wakes up. <laughs> yeah. It conveys that really well. I know we keep like hearing her like, uh, how like, Oh, she's starting to see these wizard things. And like, Oh, that suddenly seems totally normal that he's wearing robes, um, as her, you know, original memories coming back. Yeah. Um, the only, like, this is kind of like a sad moment. She looks at him and she's like, Lucius. Um, because I guess, you know, he looks like a young oh, Lucius okay. Malfoy yeah, and she doesn't know what her son looks like, you know, 10 years later. So. And her memory's only kind of half back. Yeah. And then he gets to it. So presumably the next thing he gets to say is like, no, unfortunately he was murdered last night, but uh, I'm your <laughs> son, Draco. And um, Yeah. Oh, that's true. She doesn't, she hardly knows him. She doesn't know him at all, right? Yeah. Well, well, how old was he when she was murdered? Presumably Harry's age when Harry was, Harry's oh, parents okay. were killed, right? Oh. So. Yeah, so she doesn't know him at all. Yeah, she's. She named him and then presumably shortly thereafter was fake killed. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, then Snape. Then Snape. Snape with a backpack. Yeah. He's so got something about that description in the beginning, like kept sticking out that he's a dude with a backpack. He's got his, I, I picture it with like a, like a bindle on the end of a stick, like a, like a, <laughs> like a hobo. hippie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like this scene a lot. It seemed like this was. It's, so it it seemed like it called back very much to that that scene very very early um, with Snape talking to Harry where there's he's kind of rehashing his whole crush on Lily um, and I liked it was like we got to see this perspective from from Snape of because because what he says to Harry was you know anything I might have said to you about basically how your mother's a shallow slut um, never mind not true. Um, but I liked, like that was that weird, uncomfortable interchange between Harry and Snape at that point where he goes like, oh, what would you think of somebody that, you know, chose somebody who is rich and good looking over me? Um, and like Harry sort of like let him go with the idea that like, oh, I guess, you know, she's mostly just a shallow bitch. Um, and the end result of that whole conversation was that we thought that like, okay, that's, that's what Snape walked away with. Um, but we're showing like, okay, that was never the person that Snape was this whole time. Um, and he wanted to like, now that he's sort of like given permission to be a good person and not have to hide anything anymore. He's like, you know, I just want you to know that, you know, I never thought that about your mother and you shouldn't either. Yeah. Um, it's uh, maybe, maybe he thought that for a few months or something after that conversation between then and yeah. now, but he's like, no, look, we can, we can go beyond that. Like you said, he's given himself permission to be a good person. And so he shows up and like, it looks like he's leaving. And so that's clear what's going on. And he just, first thing he says is I resign my position of potions master at Hogwarts. I will not stay to drop my last month's salary. If there are students have been particularly harmed by me, you can use the money for their benefit. 
and uh that yeah then he says that about um uh about lily and um she's a fine upstanding witch mr potter i don't know if you think anything otherwise from any words i've said and then he says your father though i've said everything i want to say about i that. know right like, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe kind of a dick yeah your dad's Which actually I'm not consistent with the with the original story. Like we have that I, I don't think we got it retold in this, but like in the original story that like him, uh James Potter and Sirius Black did this very you know, shitty bullying of Sirius. I think with some spell where they like flipped him upside down or something in the air, but this, you know, kind of petty, humiliating kind of bullying of Sirius. Severus. Uh, or, yes, yes. So get your Latin, get your pseudo Latin together, man. Yes. Well, that, yeah. So Sirius and James bullying Severus. I know everybody's got a Latin name. Um, yeah, and that part's like still the same, and and also still not good behavior. Yeah. So, yeah. And so um, I just like, uh, um, what was his thing here? He said more than one bar lay between myself and Lily. Most little, most notably, my ill-advised attempts to curry favor with the purebloods of my house. If it made it sound like one mistake upon a muddy field ended it all, if I pretended that she had no reason but challenged not to love me, I hope your books have also told you why fools may say such things. Yeah, he's and, like saying, your mother didn't like me because I was a racist fuck, and she was right, <laughs> and rightly so, and so she's not a bad person. Not because I wasn't rich and good looking, but because I was a racist fuck. And, you know, I think for a while he was probably telling himself about like, oh yeah, it's because I called her mudblood one time. And I think that's what he was telling himself for years, right? Yeah. And then it's like, no, actually, I looking back, I, I could have done things a lot differently. Um, I like it. This is like the biggest, you know, character moment, like growth wide. Like this is like the, the giant one character uh, growth leap that we get to see. Right. Um, this might have been happening under the hood with him for a while, but this all comes up at once. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm willing to fully acknowledge what, you know, all the shit that I've done. And uh, not just, you know, back then to Lily, but for the last decade, all these poor kids. So go ahead, give them some of my money and I'm getting the fuck out of here. Um, yeah. Oh, he does tell uh, um, Severus about what happened to Voldemort. Um, very um, briefly, he just says, I obliviated most of his memories and sealed him. I guess that's how wizards would say it. Um, yeah, because that's still sort of like in the back of Snape's mind is like what, you know, what is his obligation or just his continuing tie to Voldemort? So he, Cause he still doesn't know how does the rest of his life work out as a former death eater. And the dark mark on his arm isn't dead. Yeah. 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 So yeah, he knows well, he's not really, really dead. Yeah. And I guess is Snape the only surviving death eater? Uh, and Bellatrix, I guess. Oh um, yeah. I guess so. Um, I, and I'm not sure how many there originally were, you know, maybe there's some still in Azkaban too. Um, um oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So but presumably every free one that wasn't Snape or Bellatrix showed up in the graveyard. I like this too. So uh, Harry says, Professor Snape, the Order of the Phoenix owes you for services rendered. I'm in an excellent position to repay it, <laughs> both financially and magically, in case you want to start your next life with, with in a position of wealth or with better hair or something. <laughs> I'm like, I'm super powerful now and rich as fuck. So you need me to hook you up? Um, I like this whole exchange. You know, it's brief, but it's awesome. He says, such, such strange words to say to me. I went to the Dark Lord intending to sell him the prophecy in exchange for Lily's love becoming mine by whatever darkness was required to achieve it. That is hardly something to be, something to be forgiven lightly. And then in the years after, as a potions, when I was a potions master, you experienced that yourself. Do you think my service to the Order of Phoenix has repaid all of my sins? And Harry says, people are always broken. They make mistakes. At least you try to repay them. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think about this the way it parted though, because it was such like a, so they like insult each other in parting where, uh, 
It's delightful. Snape says, like, drop dead, Potter. Because <laughs> like, it's such like a break in their normal, like, the, the vibe of the way they interact with each other. So the, their, their parting words are this, like, super informal fuck you and a smirk. Yeah. Harry offers him one last piece of advice about, you know, not try or trying not to be depressed. Like, don't ruminate. You have my blank permission oh, yeah, as, yeah. as the heir of the Potters. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. So he, shampoo, fuck. He, gives, he gives him the shampoo <laughs> advice, but the, the first bit was a little more uh, heavier tone, which was like, yeah, my permission as their last, you know, as their heir yeah. to like not carry the guilt around. Um, and he says, I'll take yeah, that in consideration. Like, you know, go on. You, you know, you're a good person. Go on with the rest of your life. You don't have to carry the weight of this forever. Yeah. Also try better shampoo. Way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a wry grin crossed Everest's face and Harry thought it might thought for the first time that it might have been the man's true smile. He says, drop dead, Potter. <laughs> yeah, I like that. In the last the last line here, without saying anything else, the man took a pinch of flu powder, cast it in the fireplace, and strode into the green flame, whispering something that nobody caught. And it was the last time that anyone ever heard of Severus Snape. Yeah. I think it was a good scene. I think it was a short chapter. It, was, it wrapped that, that part up nicely. I like that. I like it a lot. And... Yeah, man. That's it. That's this is weird. One chapter left. Now we're coming up to it. We have the last chapter, and spoiler alert: it's called "Something to Protect Hermione Granger." So, as far as the show, we have uh, we're, we're going to do a retro after one twenty two, um, trying to figure out what we're going to do for that, and then that'll put us what a week or two, or a couple weeks into December. So we'll probably take off at least a couple of weeks before we think about doing any other projects. Uh, but you know, uh, this will, will more stuff will be coming out. So, um, do stay tuned. I don't know if I've actually mentioned on the air what the next thing will be. So I'm going to pretend like I haven't, uh, <laughs> so we'll have something else coming, but anyway, we're not done yet. So we still have chapter 122. Yes. All right. Well, anything else from you, Brian? Uh, no. Okay. It's pulling up to the end. Yeah, it's it feels dramatic. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. When I plan this out, uh, I can't. I'll have to look and see when the first one. Yeah, aired. I guess we always knew the timing was. We, the timing of this is about pretty much what we thought the whole time. I'd guess something in the fifties of episodes, and that was just kind of at a ballpark glance at like the, the word count or something. But yeah, I should have made that prediction like on the air in the first episode. Like I bet this will end up in J- December or January of twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one or whatever. But we wouldn't have predicted the whole COVID thing. Yeah, that's true, but that didn't that didn't really impact our our release schedule whatsoever. So uh, yeah, I guess that's true. we missed one episode. <laughs> um, oh yeah. All right. Well, everyone, join us back for the the final chapter of the book, chapter one twenty two, next week. Bye, everybody. See you next week. 